Welcome to episode 76 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I am your host, Rose Griffin, and we are in for an amazing episode today. I talked with Dr. Trina Spencer. She is a amazing force in the field. She has been a board-certified behavior analyst for more than 21 years, and she was tuning in from South Africa, where she is currently a Fulbright Scholar at the Center for Augmentative and Alternative Communication. What really struck me with Dr. Spencer is that she has always had this journey and this path to collaborative services. Uh, She really believes in researcher-practitioner partnerships, and you will really hear that in her journey in the field that she shares with us. She's done such amazing work. Today, we talk about her journey into the field, which is absolutely fascinating. She is helping on such a large scale, and you may even be using some of her materials and interventions right now um, without knowing that she was the creator. So the thing that we talk about today is called Story Champs, and Story Champs is something that is a popular multi-tiered narrative intervention curriculum. And what's so amazing especially for my listeners, is that she has a speech-language pathology colleague, and she's developed several assessment instruments um, with this colleague, and they've done a lot of research together. You know me, I'm really big on collaboration, and I think what makes Dr. Trina Spencer such a bright spot in the field is this idea of researcher practitioner partnerships, which is so very, very important. And I love the last line in her bio. I think it really sums up uh, what she's contributing. It says she routinely promotes anti-ableist practices, cultural humility, and interprofessional collaboration. Love that so much. Let's dig into this chat with Dr. Trina Spencer. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 76 of the Autism Outreach Podcast, and we have an amazing show today. We have with us Dr. Trina Spencer. Thanks so much for joining us. It's amazing to have you on. Thanks for inviting me. This is a real honor to be on your show. Thank you. What a treat. Well, you know, I do like a little bit of an intro, you know, I'll tape that at another time, but I was reading your bio word for word right before I came on. (laughs) was like, wowza, you're doing such amazing um, work, but I don't know much about, you know, your background and I know you're doing so many things in the field, but can you tell us, you know, uh, your story? Like, how did you get into this line of work? What are you up to now? And, and how does that all look? Okay, well, I'm gonna. I, I can talk fast. <laughs> no, that's um, okay. I have a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah. I might want to ask questions. It's it's a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah, that's fine. You can stop me and clarify. And <laughs> wait, wait. What did you do there? All right. Let's let's say let's start with. Um, I was raised by a pack of dingo dogs. Let's start there. <laughs> so I actually, I, I say that because like I, I don't come from educated parents and um, rural. I grew up on a ranch where the only interaction was really the dingo dogs. Okay. Oh, pony. she's serious. Okay. I'm she's serious. serious. Okay. But it plays into like why I'm interested in this idea, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I eventually made it from there, you know, being a latch latchkey child with nobody talking to me or reading to me. I made it to college clueless of what's going on, right? But uh, I had a psychology class and one of the the professor was talking about heart and wrist these meaningful differences, right? And um, it, it's really about the importance of language for everything else in, in the world. And I was so struck by this this just conversation in this class that I went, ha- I went out and bought the book immediately. And um, I didn't know anything about graduate school. I mean, really clueless. The same professor said to me one day, when are you taking the GRE? And I was like, oh, as soon as I can. And as soon as I left that meeting, I was looking it up. What's the GRE? I don't know. Right? I was completely clueless. I did not have an enriched language environment that prepared me for an academic environment. But I was like an eager learner and, you know, willing and resourceful to do those things. Anyway, so I get in front of a graduate school committee and I can you not? I applied to one program. It was the 
program where I graduated from in the oh. same department. Yeah. And then she says to me, why are your GRE scores, your verbal scores so low? And I said, mm, I was raised by a pack of dingo dogs. Yeah. Nobody was talking or reading to me. And I feel yeah. really strongly that this is the this pivotal skill. And I kind of was deprived of that. So I'm doing everything I can to like make up time and work. And then yeah. and I want to do everything I can to make sure other kids are not suffering that saving consequences me. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I was in school psychology. It was a school psychology program. You know, it was too late by the time I realized what they do. I was like, wait, this is <laughs> So <laughs> oh, like a school psychologist. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm kind of ending my, I'm retiring from my work in the public schools. I have worked for 20 years in the uh, public schools as a speech therapist, three days a week. And so I'm, I'm announcing it here, but you know, yeah, I'm going to start <laughs> focusing on just ABA speech. So yeah, school psychologist, it's all testing and it's like very right. timeline and like get your report in and it's, it's right. like herding cats. I mean, it's really, let's, yeah. let's keep in mind though. I was actually not happy with diagnostics. I was right. not happy with that. I took a job actually in a very famous school called the Fred S. Keller, Keller School in New York City. And um, I did all of the uh, testing for children who were referred as a result, like who were suspected of autism, you know, oh, that kind of thing. Okay, okay. And I also, I also had undergraduate courses in behavior analysis and was part of, you know, like a group and whatever. And back at that time, there were no BCBA courses, like yeah. it was just kind of like a new thing. Yeah. And so I ended up having enough coursework in my psych because my mentors were all behavior analysts that I put it together. And I was one of the first people to be certified in oh, as a BCBA really? in the year oh, 2001. Yes. Oh my god! I, I couldn't actually practice using it. I just got it just to be like, yeah, I know what I'm yeah. doing. I, and, but I was a school psychologist, did all this testing with these kids. And I was really frustrated that I couldn't actually go further because I actually had enough skill to be able to teach them. Right. And so anyway, so the long story short, I ended up staying in New York for several years and um, working as a kind of an autism specialist for districts mm. and for, you know, like private kind of nonprofit kind of organizations yeah. and just got a lot of great experience. I also had a reading background for my master's program. Um, my mentors were kind of literacy folks, just, you know, direct instruction kind of people, uh -huh. uh, teaching and whatnot. And so like, I was bringing all this great literacy and everything to it. But guess what? I had all these kids with autism, who I thought I was doing a great job teaching to read. And then I would say, okay, I would ask them questions about it and um, <laughs> about a story they read or like, tell me what you just read. They would look at me like, you know, the crickets. Right. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, oh, there's something going on here. I did not do such a great job. And I didn't have any answers to that. Yeah. And I scoured the literature, no research. I couldn't get anything. So I was like, I'm done with this. I got to go back and get my PhD. So I did a PhD. <laughs> And I went back to the same school. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love but, it. I, I love that because I'm from Northeast Ohio. So I'm like oh. very like, I grew up in Akron. I went to Akron U for my undergrad. I also applied there for my <laughs> master's, but they didn't give me an assistantship. So I went to Kent State, which is like 20 well, minutes away. Yeah, right I also have another degree from Cleveland State. So I'm hearing you on this. I like this. Okay. <laughs> I can, well, it's primary, relatable. The primary reason I went back to the same school, which by the way, was Utah State University. The primary reason was because by that time I had two little boys oh. and I had no family anywhere except for that town. And yeah. so I was like, how am I going to like leave a, a, a lucrative job in New York City, right? And be able to sustain this family. And anyway, so I did the PhD in disability disciplines and I did in three years because I was in a hurry. I've got a family to take care of. And um, and I and I was pregnant or with a newborn for two thirds of my PhD program. Um, my, my, my daughter's actually right here. And I told her to be quiet. Yeah. Right? Super woman. So, yeah. Okay. So, but the program itself is called disability disciplines. It was a very interprofessional, um, this was in 2006 and our program was designed to have all these like clinical master's programs all feed into the same research doctorate. And so I ended up specializing in kind of like early childhood special education and language development. Because I didn't need to 
specialized in behavior analysis. I already had that content. Yeah. I was already certified there. So I could kind of like, yeah, skip over that stuff. And um, I took all the language development courses I possibly could. And that's where I met Doug Peterson, who is an, a speech language pathologist. And that was his clinical degree. And he had great experiences working with school psychs uh-huh. um, prior to the PhD. And I had great experiences working with SLP. Because we would do like arena assessments and like she and I would just like do all of our stuff together. Yeah. And um, anyway, so when we were in our PhD program, we kind of like uh, hit it off, but mostly we just argued. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sounds very BCBA SLP. I was going to say, I'm glad to hear that you had those good experiences because sometimes I feel like one time I was on an ethics panel, invited to be on an ethics panel for BCBA. So I'm like all excited. I'm going to go there and I'm going to talk about collaboration and, you know, all this stuff. And this is many years ago, right? Because they just added something um, more robust onto our code. But, and the other person next to me was a BCBA. She was also sharing on this panel. And her whole thing was about a speech therapist who didn't know what they were doing. And it was like so negative. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what happens to me. I get into a room of BCBAs and it's like, everybody wants to tell me some SLP horror story. A horror story. And Mm -hmm. vice versa. I get into a room of speech therapists and it's like, I actually have a TikTok. (laughs) Yes. I have a TikTok. It's going to like post tomorrow. And it's all about um, going into a room of SLPs and then find out I'm a BCBA as well. And they're like, Okay. Yeah. We don't like you anymore. I mean, I'm sure you're doing great work, but now you're trash. That happened to me so many times, so yeah. many, so many times. I actually had, you know, SLPs and behavior analysts on my dissertation committee. And mm-hmm. literally one of them said, yeah, but isn't speech language pathology like an unscientific field? And I was like, oh my gosh, did you just say that? I can't believe this is happening in my, my, my meeting. Uh-huh. Anyway. So I tell people that I got a degree in collaborating with people who think differently than me. Okay. So that's kind of like what it was. And I I actually really like people who differ than me. If you think the way I do, Mm -hmm. you don't have anything to offer me. Right. You know the same thing. You have nothing to offer me. So I'm just kind of like, yeah, find somebody who thinks differently. Somebody to challenge me, you know, like really give me something good, which is why I really uh, hit it off with Doug. We did argue a lot because he had some real um, stereotypical ideas about what behavior analysts do. And I would go, hold up, wait just a second. That is a way huge overgeneralization. I would never do that. Right. You know? and, and then what, what ended up happening, and this is related to like the, the kind of like the evolution story is that after the first summer, he and I were both doing independent research projects. And I got to a point in my project where I, I collected this language sample from this, you know, this little girl with autism. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but she can like mand and tact and she can even engage in all these interverbals and stuff. I said, I, I don't think I have anything to teach her. And I, and I asked Doug to look at the language sample and he's like, oh, but she's not using prepositions, coordinating yeah. conjunctions, subordinating conjunctions. And I'm like, wait, just like, I don't know what those things are. <laughs> and so he taught me how to like analyze language samples and all this like structural elements that were so important for this mm-hmm. little girl to learn because she just sounded weird. She'd say, oh, it it is blue. It is a flower or, you know, like really rigid kind of like short sentences. And so he helped me kind of identify the, what this little girl needed to teach. Flip side, he was doing a storybook narrative intervention. And, um, he, you know, he's like, yeah, I did this in clinical practice. And, uh-huh. you know, he's like, but I need to do a single case design. I don't know how to do that. And I need somebody to help me with intervention. So he gives me his little lesson plan, his little outline. <laughs> yeah. As, as he was kind of like, let's see what she's got kind of yeah. he was testing me. And I looked at it. I looked, read through it very quickly. And I looked at him and I said, do you mind if I make some tweaks? And he's <laughs> red, like, no, red pen. <laughs> yes. So like I reordered his instructional sequence, yeah. um, you know, based on good, healthy instructional design, right. which really comes from the science of behavior. And um, he, he looks at it and he goes, Oh, huh, actually that makes a lot of sense. It was really good. So anyway, we implemented that procedure. So I tweaked the, how to teach. He taught me what to teach in our yeah. studies. And it was so fruitful for the both of both of us. We have now published something like 30 articles together. Wow. It's like we're a team that like you can't separate us because we are so, so valuable together. Right. Right. 
So our story, my story is really our story. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. I love to hear that. Um, I had Lori Frost on the podcast, you know, um, and she talked about how she, yeah, I mean, this is like so cool. I love these, like, I love talking to people like this. So she was telling me like she was a school-based SLP and then she had these really hard kids and they weren't, you know, making progress and they weren't communicating. And Andy Bondi was her school psychologist or something like that. And then they started working together and doing these interventions. And I'm just like, jaw drop. Like, I mean, it's amazing. Like how they're reaching so many people in like what 18 countries, or it's just something so absolutely amazing that when you just have this moment and, you know, you're working together, um, that's so cool. And I wish everybody would have that same and and leave room for that same collaboration story, you know, on, on, on their own scale, because some people are just so shut off to other professions. Like I was just telling one of my online uh, besties that somebody had posted a speech therapist had posted Posted in a, a Facebook group, which you know, I just I'm on a on a social media behavior plan some days, but uh, I let it I let it go yesterday. And somebody had posted, "Well, we're not taking any clients in our clinic who get ABA services," and I was just like dying inside. I mean, I'm going to do a whole I think ethical talk that will be Ace and Asha because my company does both. That's just about the ethics of collaboration because a lot of people don't know what the ethical code says. I mean, I think some BCBAs do because we have a whole course on it. Like I teach a class on it, but speech therapists, yes, we know we have ethical guidelines to abide by, but I don't think people are, we're not in touch with the code. We don't have to take an entire class on ethics. You know what I mean? So I know that speech therapists listening don't realize that BCBAs take a legit three credit course on the ethical code and how to apply it. But I feel like there's so much gray area. So the fact that you've had this journey with collaboration is really inspiring. So thanks for sharing that today. I love that so much. Um, and so now your work, I mean, tell us where you're at now. No, just tell us where you're at now because it's very exciting and I, I don't want that okay. to like, we don't want to sleep on that. Okay. Well, so I'm an associate professor at University of South Florida in Tampa. Uh, and I, and I work at a research center and I'm the only behavior analyst and I'm not an SLP, but there aren't any SLPs in my, my unit either. They're mostly psychologists and stuff. It's interdisciplinary, but I am currently a Fulbright scholar in Pretoria, South Africa. And I am assigned to and chose to work at the Center for Augmentative and Alternative Communication. It's the only unit like this in the entire continent of Africa. And I wanted to come here because A, they're experts in AAC, but B, they have a multilingual context. There are 11 official languages in South Africa. And so AAC is a complicated area that lacks evidence base for their interventions broadly. I'm not saying at all. I'm just saying like there's a lot yeah. of evidence that is still needed to guide uh, AAC practice. And then we're layering on this multilingual context. And there are no legislation um, and regulations in this in the whole country of South Africa around people with disabilities. And so it is like it is like that's a lot. <laughs> it is wow. so crazy to learn these kinds of things where I think, oh no, we've got to just like advocate, they've got to do this. No, no, no. There's no legal no. reason for them to do anything here. Wow. And so so it is just a really amazing context for me to like grow like fast, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so that's that's why I'm here. I'm also doing a bit of like storytelling. So I'm infusing my storytelling and narrative expertise with AAC. And I'm also infusing storytelling things with li- literacy, reading and writing with even typically developing children in yeah. multiple languages in South Africa. Wow. Right. And that's amazing. The other thing I'm doing that actually today is kind of a significant day. I launched a national advisory board called Echo Autism South Africa. Oh, wow. Um, just, Just today. Oh my God. And you came on the podcast. Well, thank you. Oh my, well, what is, so what is echo autism? I mean, what will that, what will that do? Well, well, understanding that complicated context, like political, sociopolitical uh, language context, right? Racial context too in South Africa. Um, Really the services and infrastructure in this country are really poor and there are no training programs around autism, right? There's, there's nothing structured from them. You can get a, a degree in speech language therapy, mm-hmm. occupational therapy. There are no behavior analysis courses at all. 
they don't exist. And in fact, the, like the advocates against it are very strong. And yet the providers, the teachers, the therapists on the ground are desperate for it. As a matter of fact, I have three trainings just next week on this topic of like how to use and how to, how to, how to apply the science in their practice, because they need to know right. challenging behavior, functions of behavior, functional communication training, just like simple things. Right. And so, Oh, what was your question? Echo Sorry. autism. What oh, you're going to do with Sorry. that. Yeah. No, that's yeah, okay. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So echo is stands for um, extension of community health outcomes. And it's actually comes from a medical um, system where they're extending expertise into rural, remote, and underserved communities without having to move people. So traditional, we either move an expert to the rural, rural area or force those people to come to where the expert is. And around autism, there's two years of wait lists right? To see an expert and there might be two. And then they're really just diagnosing. And then when you, once you get a diagnosis, what the heck do you do with this? Right. And so there's all sorts of those problems. So echo is a system or like a professional learning and um, lifelong learning and guided practice model to move knowledge, not people. And um, echo autism is all over in the States. And the hub, the hub for echo is in New Mexico, University of New Mexico. The hub for echo autism is the University of Missouri. And um, the echo autism I established is the first on the African continent. And I'm super proud of that. I'm happy about it because we finally have a mechanism to transfer knowledge. Right. And I can build expertise in country by having just a few experts that actually gets translated into like all of these underserved areas. There are actually three BCBAs in South Africa. Wow. And so one of them is, is, uh, is working with me and I'm super excited about that. She's had some really great training and we've got to start there. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a very interprofessional model. So we have, um, speech language pathologists, occupational therapists, teachers, parents, we have a very strong advocacy group of parents, um, who actually organized a march in all the different um, provinces here just uh, like maybe two weeks, maybe a week and a half ago, they organized a march on the department of ed because they are not funding autism services. And it was, it it was across the country. It was so cool. But anyway, that person who organized that march is on my board. Wow. Uh, Anyway, so it's just a, it's just a really exciting time because we're going to be able to really have a collective thinking around what does South Africa need to improve the education and treatment of children and adults with autism. And we do have some um, adults with autism, some autistic adults who are going to be participating and really giving us the, you know, like the, um, an anti-ableist angle to all of the things that we're doing. And that's great. In and That's amazing. Wow. I'm going to have to research that. That's really amazing that you're helping so many people. Sometimes even when I used to live in Texas, Austin, but when I would drive into rural areas of Texas, I would look around and I would, my first thought was there's probably some kids with autism living here. And I, I don't know if they're, and I might be generalizing, but I don't know if they have the access to the best services. Cause I had heard some not so great stories about some more rural areas, you know, just from this cohort where I was getting my BCBA down there. Um, Kelly Rich was my supervisor, but you know, I would just hear these stories and be like, oh dear, <laughs> you know, cause I was in Austin and it was very like, everything was scientific and everybody was getting good care. And then I would hear some stories and, you know, the speech therapist discharged a, a second grader because they weren't talking. So they weren't ready for speech. And I was like, oh gosh, that's not right. You know what I mean? So I imagine that you're doing such great work and that's kind of always where my mind goes is like, oh no, there's people living here that don't have access to maybe the best services. I know teletherapy has, you know, I'm licensed in Washington state. I'm here in Ohio. I really love, like I do this thing with some ABA providers up there where I'm servicing preschool age students and working with RBTs. And I really love that. Um, But I I just always, my mind always goes to those kids who don't have the access to to robust services. So thank you for your work. The kids here don't have access to anything, right? Nothing, wow, like zero, right? No, they they might be in a special school, but really that just means segregation, right? right? There's right. no, they don't know how to work with them. Yeah, you know, I mean, here and there you've got a few people that maybe have gone somewhere for training or something, but yeah. They, they're touching like just a few people, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So it, it's really about capacity building and not trying to import 
something from another culture, from another right. system, but really to create it South yeah. African style. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I, I kind of say, I'm like, I'm just an ambassador. I don't really yeah. have a role here. I'm just, yeah. you know, right. Hey, yeah. Together, you know, yeah. Getting the infrastructure. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So cool. Well, I'm excited about all that. Thank you for sharing that and such amazing work that you're doing and will continue to do. So I can't wait to to follow your journey. Um, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about today that I thought speech therapists and potentially some BCBAs as well that are listening would be excited to to learn about is um, Story Champs. So honestly, I have not used Story Champs, but I have heard a lot about it. So I'm excited for you to to tell me about it because I want to include it in my intervention. But can you tell us about Story Champs? Because I feel like it's probably been around a while and I feel like people are using it, but I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I know that it's it's a great tool. So can you tell us, you know, about it? Sure, sure, sure. So remember that research that Doug and I started. Right. So my dissertation study was the first story champ study. We developed, you know, we did, I helped him do his little intervention, but it, it, it was, you know, fraught with all these problems. And I was like, we could do this better. Let's just start over scratch. Like, let's do it. So I developed this intervention, of course, with his help. And, you know, the instructional procedures, we we wrote stories, we had them illustrated the whole nine yards. And it was my dissertation study. Um, and so it has continued to evolve and, you know, develop more. But the easiest way to say it's a, it's currently, it's a multi-tiered, Okay. Um, system of language instruction. That's oh. the easiest way to describe that. What that means is that it can be used by almost anybody. So gen ed teachers, special ed teachers, you know, any kind of reading teacher, a parent, uh, SLP, you know, pretty much anybody in the school system or out because it has teaching procedures like pretty um, really robust and lesson plans for large group, small group, one-on-one. Um, the, the current version of story champs is appropriate for children who are language developed three years old to typical third grade. So even if you have a a fifth or a sixth grader who has language skills within that gap between preschool to third grade, that would be very appropriate for them. We have, I think we have 20 published studies, but we have more, um, that either have not, you know, have not quite yet been published or, you know, in process or some, some way, you know, um, maybe 20, maybe near 25 or something like that. We have used, um, single case design, um, group studies, uh, and we've also looked at each of the tiers individually for different populations, children with language, Uh, like developmental language disorder, kids with autism, kids with, I don't know, neurological something. I can't even remember, (laughs) you know, and then, and then typically developing kids. We also have uh, bilingual versions. Um, So Spanish versions from preschool to third grade, I mean, quite extensive. So we have, uh, I would say a third of our publications are with uh, a non um, English as a home language population. Um, so, but so it's like, it's like huge. The other piece I would say is that it also promotes academic and social language mm-hmm. in a very structured way. Okay. So much of our research is about building this academic language, um, which really involves patterns of language. So discourse structures, um, sentence structures, words and word structures, as well as inferencing. Okay. If you put those things together, it you children learn those things and teachers learn what's important or the users you learn about those things but not they don't actually need to know that much about those things to be able right. to do it well mm-hmm. and if you teach the children well what happens is children's reading comprehension and writing improves as well as their ability to tell personal stories to retell something they've read um inferencing improves their vocabulary improves their their complex sentences improves and it improves quite rapidly because it has a very sophisticated instructional design. So, so I would imagine you have a, there, is there an assessment as part of this too, so that you can determine where to start with the learner? There is an assessment. Um, It doesn't come with story champs. Okay. Okay. It's independent. And actually the quite a few people use it independent of story champs. So it's called cube. Okay. The, the the cubed assessment is a suite of assessments that cover currently they cover uh code skills 
and comprehension. So if you think about the simple view of reading, you know, true skilled reading comprehension is the product of uh, word level reading and um, language or listening comprehension. And so our assessment tool covers those things. Again, from preschool to third grade, we have screening measures like universal screenings of fall winter, spring, progress monitoring measures for like repeated. So uh, each grade level has somewhere between like 16 and 25 parallel forms. So it's really handy. And the cube is free. It's a download. Oh, wow. All right. And it's, it's massive. It really is massive. There's so much stuff in it. It also covers writing. It covers personal generations, uh, comprehension questions, vocabulary, inferencing questions, story. Re- I mean, it's And it's huge. free? Uh, it's free? It's free. People will yes. like it. Wait, so are you saying cubed? Like, how do you spell it? C-U-B-E-D, cubed. Okay. And it's not an acronym. It's not an acronym. Okay. And the, reason, the reason for it, cubed is about getting really like a multidimensional look. Most of the assessments that are available in schools or even in our world, they're very narrow. They're yes. single They're single dimensional, right? And we're missing, like most of schools are doing a pretty good job uh, measuring word level reading or decoding or reading fluency. Okay. Yeah. So that's only one part of that equation. But right. if there is zero or low on the listening or language comprehension side of it, reading comprehension is going to be zero. Yeah. Right. And yeah. no, and no schools are looking at comprehension. They don't know how to monitor. They don't know how to assess it, at least not in any kind of real time. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're going to talk about the assessment, I'm going to tell you too, that you can get a listening comprehension and a reading comprehension measure of every kid in your class, each with some somewhere between one and three minutes. Wow. Okay. I'm looking that yeah. up and we'll, we'll include that in the show notes too, everybody, <laughs> because when you said free, I was ding, ding, ding. Um, it sounds so comprehensive because one of our most popular podcast episodes. I have this um, colleague, Lisa Chatler. She lives in uh, California. I met her at one of the first ASHA, actually the first ASHA I ever went to. She was, I was by myself. I had just started my business. I was like nervous and had a one-year-old at home and two other kids. I'm like, what, what am I doing here? I should be, I should be at home. But anyway, she kind of scooped me up under her wing and she's been so kind to me. You you know, it's so nice to have people like that. Um, But she came on and she talked about comprehension and it's just one of our most popular episodes because, and she kind of talked about socially and academically as well, because Mm -hmm. that's the thing is like comprehension so hard. And even though I have a master's degree in that, I feel like I'm kind of utilizing my BCBA part of my brain when I do have a learner that is starting to work on comprehension, you know, and I'm kind of systematically um, just with my knowledge and in the field for 20 years and all the things I know kind of working on it and stair-stepping it that way. So it sounds really nice because the things you're saying, speech therapists work on these things a lot, like comprehension, inferencing, you know, some students, it's like they feel like they never get to that point, right? That's like where it starts to get really more complex, this personal narrative or retelling about something. I can't tell you how many times I wrote a goal for something like that. So to have something like this, um, it sounds really amazing. And that assessment sounds really great too. So for story champ, so you said it could be used one-on-one and it can also be used in a small group or what, what would the size of the group group be? Or large group. Oh, really? Or large group. Okay. Yeah. So gen ed teachers, actually story champs is in schools all over the country. Yeah. And actually outside of the country. Wow. (laughs) Ironically, (laughs) India. Oh, wow. (laughs) India, Australia, Canada, huge users of story champs in their gen ed. In some places it's gen ed and in some places it's their SLPs, you know, whatever. Um, Yeah. No, that it is flexible. It's supposed to fit into an MTSS model. It okay. can, if that's the yeah. way it is. It is a multi-tiered system of language instruction. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it kind of like insert, you know, put it yeah. into your system. And we've done multiple studies where we've, um, you know, worked with the SLPs in buildings mm. to implement um, their systems. And it, it basically enhances their literacy MTSS uh, really nicely. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I feel like it just would tighten everything up. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, it gives them really concrete skills or like not just, it does teach skills. One of the things that we kind of hypothesize is that users become better at language intervention and language teaching because our lessons are pretty like 
systematic and they and they have this sophisticated instructional design so these patterns in the lesson actually teach some the adult who's using it how to do this better right right and i've heard you know people say that's actually why i like story channels is because it's a great training tool so some universities use it as a, a way to like train their master's level clinicians um yeah or like yeah, I've just seen a lot of creative uses of that outside of the benefits for the children. Oh, that's um, amazing. So do you, that's always neat when you, I have two physical products that one, the action builder cards and the other are called double up, which is a life skills intervention game. But it's so neat when other people tell me how they're using something. And it's like, sometimes yeah. I'm like, oh, I've never, ever used it that way. It was not an intended use, but it's really cool to hear how people are using it. So that's going to make you feel really good that mm-hmm. that instruction is taking place. So, yeah. so when you're going through the curriculum and you are doing the lessons, are there things that you specifically as the um, instructor are going to say? To the, do you have prompts that the instructor or the SLP teacher, whoever it is, is going to say? Do they need to say it a specific way as noted in yeah. your materials? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really great question. So the current version that's commercialized, Story Champs, um, is not fully scripted. We okay. call it semi, semi-manualized. Okay. Um, it has outlined step-by-step, but there are some places where it says... here's what you need to say, like what question to ask, but it's not like fully scripted, but here's that works really well. If you've got a trained clinician behind the helm, right? Mm -hmm. If you've got an SLP who actually knows how to like navigate and knows what to target and what to do, that works pretty well. But when you put that in the hands of a gen ed teacher, they're like, I don't know what what am I supposed to do here? Right. And so in our research, what would happen is the teachers would say, can you just write me a script? And I'd go, really, you want a script? Absolutely. I write your script. So uh, we actually have um, multiple grade level curricula in the works and hopefully they launch in 2023 um, because they're going to be really powerful. So think about the kind of literacy curricula that gen ed teachers use. You know, they need like a lesson a day kind of a thing, much more scripted. Um, That said, like we've created them. I have them all scripted. They're very scripted, but it is also loose in that they don't what it's scripted. So they learn the patterns. Yeah. Right. They don't actually have to say that exact thing. And only that exact thing, as long as they're following the instructional pattern. And so what we see is that at first the teachers will follow that script pretty well, but after about three or four lessons, they don't actually need to look at the script anymore. They know what it is they're supposed to do. And then it's a lot more. I'm like, good, set the, set the lesson, the teacher book aside and engage. Right. And then there are some, some activities within that scripted lesson that we can't script. So when children are um, are retelling the story, like what a teacher or an interventionist has to respond to what the child is doing and saying. Right. And so we have then guidelines and principles that we like teach them. So we have like a two-step prompting procedure. We have overcorrection. And we have, you know, like kind of some rules mm-hmm. that get taught at the mm-hmm. same time of when and how to do things. So it's pretty easy to learn, right? Oh, so even the parts that aren't like totally and 100% scripted, they're easy to learn. And we really don't want people to put their face in a book, right? <laughs> we, we want the script there for when you need it and when a new right. person comes on. So like we... We see a lot of turnover in education. And so like you can hand it off to somebody and they can mechanically get through the next two or three lessons. And then they're like, oh, I got this. I know what's going on. And then they go, you know, so that's kind of the, that's one of the reasons why it does actually affect um, teaching behaviors is because it's very um, formulaic in its instruction. They're called instructional formats. And you kind of like, sense what those formats are without Mm -hmm. having someone to have to tell you what those are. Yeah. I love that because I think sometimes as a therapist, it's, you know, it's hard. Like I just saw a home client on, I love my Fridays because I see this little autistic guy um, that lives in my hometown. I only have three private clients. They all live right here because that's all I have time for, but I still really love therapy, you know, and I just, I love working with him. But what I love about him is that he has a lot of energy and you have to be really in the moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, as a school-based therapist, it's like someone's pop school psychologist popping their head and like, Hey, did you get that IP goal in? Or, Hey, did you do that evaluation? You know, uh Oh, fire drill. Uh-oh. 
uh oh, there's a fight. You know, I mean, it's just like there's so many things that happen, and you like sometimes it's there's so many barriers to like being in the moment with your student, and I, that's never lost on me. Like I really love therapy. Like I like the that I can tell that you like too, like the interaction oh, yeah. with a human. Like this is why I do this. I remember when I was deciding what I wanted to do with my life, I visited my sister who I love dearly, and she's an accountant, and I was just like, oh my gosh, it's been five minutes. It feels like I've been here three hours. Like I need people. You know what I mean? Like I need people (laughs) to to thrive. I think sometimes as a clinician though, it's really hard to to be focused on the intervention because depending on where you're at, there can be a lot of barriers to the actual human interaction and instruction. Yeah. Oftentimes we're distracted by like data sheets or like the have tos or our goals or some sort of like, you know, the mechanical, the logistics of that and what we really need to be attending to and put all of our heart and soul into is the interventionist child interaction because right there's where the money happens yes. right and so it's like you've got to you've got to have good implementation supports like a scripted curriculum that support it support an interventionist if they don't know how to do it but as soon mm-hmm. as they know how to do it they got to get in and like put that stuff aside and really engage so that they can shape it appropriately, quickly, and rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I think that's one of the special things about Story Chances. It kind of does that. I mean, we the feedback is always like, oh my gosh, I use like my Story Chance intervention kind of with other content and other things they mm-hmm. learned because we taught them things like um, recasting and overcorrection procedures and modeling and like actually how to like shape, you know, withdraw um, visual cues and things like that. And it all happens naturally. We don't have to didactically tell somebody about it. They can literally pick it up and do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing to hear how it then it's generalizing and helping. You know, that's what I really love, like building the competency of that one person who then is going to touch the lives of so many other people. I think that's what's so neat about being a creator kind of in the educational space is like I do courses. And so it's like, wow, when one person takes my course, I know that I know about SLP caseloads. You know what I'm saying? So that one person is going to take this one course and learn from me and follow my content. And hopefully I'll be a coach and guide them, you know, across their journey. And it's just so amazing how many lives can be touched by, you know, this idea that you had. And it's just, um, just so amazing. I love that. So talk to us. Okay. So let's say that we have a student and the student maybe progresses through the story champs curriculum. Then do you have other ideas for, would this learner then, you know, what would that learner be ready for? Um, is there like a next point? Where does the journey continue on to beyond story champs? Okay. So first, and we need to make sure we understand what all story champs can cover because I think that's, um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges because it's such a versatile curriculum. Mm -hmm. People think, Oh, it's to teach retelling. Right. Right. But there are actually 65 different lesson plans in story champs. Mm -hmm. And those lesson plans scale from preschool to third grade. Mm -hmm. So you don't teach the same things to a preschooler that you do a third grader. And language is one of those things that is always evolving. So theoretically, you could have a child in Story Champs lessons for years mm-hmm. because there's so much in it that, that children need, right? Right. And that doesn't always translate into that's how it's used in practice. Um, so, but we would start with something like using story retelling. So we use a retelling interaction as the primary intervention, um, procedure. And by the way, that's how we would define narrative intervention as, um, uh, retelling or telling stories as the primary, um, instructional procedure. And so we would start there because it's easy to teach, right? And it gives us something to talk about and there's some structure with it, but that is not the goal. The goal is to really extend way beyond that to like personal stories, which happens really rapidly. First, second session, we can get personal stories easily. And then we want to teach fictional stories, right? The generation of fictional stories, the writing of personal stories, the writing of fictional stories, okay? Answering WH questions, defining words from context, Okay, so I'm just giving you some of the mm-hmm. lessons that I would that are kind of early on. But then once they know narrative stuff, we also have teaching procedures for informational, um, so expository language, right? So informational kinds of things, which is uh, a huge, uh, there's a paucity of tools in schools these days to teach informational language and like how to talk about it, how to organize a paragraph, main idea, key details, these kinds of things. And we actually do it all orally before we do it 
in written language. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine that if you start small and in the informational stuff, we, we don't provide passages, at least not in the commercialized version right now. Um, we would want them to draw from the, the science and social studies content that is grade level appropriate. And then you plug in this content that is from their gen ed curriculum and you use our, our teaching procedures. Mm-hmm. works beautifully beautifully mm-hmm. because so many of these kids also let's say kids with uh dld you know they're always removed from science and social studies they never get the <laughs> opportunity to learn those cool things like mm-hmm. photosynthesis or mm-hmm. civilizations you know the layers of the earth and mm-hmm. you know that there is a galaxy out there <laughs> you know? that's how they talk they get so excited because they're learning something that that is like different than or or is the same as other kids right, right. so that's that's the idea. It can really go far. Okay. So, um, yeah, it goes, it goes pretty far. It contains all the academic language one would need from preschool to third grade, typically okay. developing. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So then, but let's say you've got a child with, with autism or DLD or something like that, and they've done absolutely everything they can. At that moment, at that time, they should be able to do the gen ed curriculum and engage in academic language, oral and written in their gen ed curriculum. That's, that's what, that's where we want them to be. Yeah. That's great. I I mean, if done well, that's where they should be. Right. Right. I love that. And that's true. You know, it's like fun to learn those things. You're right. Social studies, science. And I like that too. Like I'm a middle school, uh, high school speech therapist three days a week. And I, I do love to use the kids you know, curriculum. Like I love to support what's going on in the classroom and kind of tie that into um, them being able to then talk about it and and feel comfortable during their lessons and things like that. So that's, it's really great information. Well, it sounds absolutely amazing. I, I just love that you've created this and it sounds like such a great tool that's being utilized you know, in so many different ways by so many different um, people. So if people want to find out more about you and your work, um, where can they uh, reach out? Okay. <laughs> there's, like, there's a lot of things. So story champs and the cubed, and we have other assessment tools um, that are dynamic in nature, more used for um, identifying dyslexia and DLD. Um, so those things, right, can be found at languagedynamicsgroup.com. Okay. That's the company. And and actually, this sounds really silly, but Doug and I own the majority of that company and we do oh. it on purpose. Yeah. We have business partners that really run the business, but yeah. we keep a hold of it so that they operate the way we we value which is yeah. really evidence first so yes. many like publishers and you know like for-profit entities are all about the dollar bill yeah and right. i are like no no we'll give it for free and they, I mean, <laughs> yeah, they, right. they always our colleagues or our partners are always like are you sure we can't sell the cube nope we own the majority it's for yeah. free you know? that's great yeah. so, so we have the we kind of have those veto rights, you know, right. and we, we do the research and then we say, okay, this assessment instrument is ready to commercialize and then yeah. let the business do it. Right. Okay. So languagedynamicsgroup.com, you'll find a lot of stuff on that website. It hosts, we have a research site an implementation page. Um, lots of, we have an implementation specialist that works for that company who basically just supports districts, clinicians, mm-hmm. anybody, you know, anybody, any, anything and all free, like the implementation support comes free. You buy our products, you get a basically one-on-one consultant. Wow. Um, and then, so that's that one place. Uh, I have a personal website called Trina's toolbox.com. And at Trina's Toolbox, it's basically a collection of all the other stuff that I've created over the years <laughs> in my research that didn't have a publisher. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I, uh, for the most part, they're free or I've linked them to other places they're being sold because I do have other instruments. I develop other assessment tools and curricula and stuff like that and mm-hmm. other publishers pick those up. And so I'll link them there. Um, but the Trina's Toolbox generally has tons and tons tons of freebies. Um, For example, one of the things that I have that I run through the university is a, is a group called undergrads and underdogs (laughs) where I uh, engage undergrads who used to be the underdogs, but made it to college. And they do, um, they, they read books to kids. They volunteer in classrooms and usually in preschool classrooms and they read books to kids. And over the years, I mean, I've been doing it for like, I don't know, maybe 10 years. And we have like hundreds of uh, these cute little bookmarks 
that go with storybooks, right? So you have a vocabulary lesson. Every book has four words that are selected. We've given you child-friendly definitions, the context in the book, some activities to do with them as you're doing like shared storybook reading. Here's the instruction that you can do with it. And they're all free. You can just download them. Uh, I think there are like, there's more than a hundred that are there and I have probably 300 that needs to be posted. So, (laughs) but I'm not, I'm not available right now to update my website, but it'll be updated. You can also find links to all of our articles on that um, trees toolbox and anything that I'm working on currently. So I do have other funded projects, you know, um, research projects where I develop things because that's what I am. and, And I'll just put them there for free. So there's some really great discourse analysis tools. If people are interested in academic language of primary students called ALPS, there's some great, great uh, tools there. And that's actually a current funded project. I'm done with the data collection and just working on dissemination. So SLP should be uh, on the lookout for some publications on on ALPS project. Um, uh, It's a a pretty massive uh, database of academic language. Okay, so Trina's Toolbox has tons of stuff. Just go and spend an hour. Um, and then um, another place that you can get some really good um, m- more information is Northern Speech Services. Yeah. Um, so I've done a couple CEU courses for them. And one oh. of them is on academic language and how to teach it. So like what is academic language and how to teach it? So some of the things I've kind of inserted in here about discourse structures, sentence structures, words, inferencing, that kind of thing. I go deep dive into that and um, the reviews are pretty good. It's mostly SLPs who are taking that course. Um, So they offer CEUs. I I would definitely recommend it. And there's an article that that is actually based on um, that was published in seminars. Okay. I can't remember the rest of the name. (laughs) Um, With my good friend, Beth Kelly out of Missouri. So um, she's a thought partner on my academic language stuff there. And then, and and then same Northern speech services is a, I think they're still editing, but I actually created a um, certification course on narrative intervention. So it's going to be like a, like the Mac daddy of courses. Yeah. it is it, it is pretty extensive, um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm super excited for it because I think SLPs will love it. Yeah. Like a real in-depth, how do you do this in your practice? Real hands-on. Um, I really take it like the nuts and bolts all the way all the way around, and how do you implement it with lots of implementation supports? Mm-hmm. And so that that should be coming out. I I don't know. I didn't get an update, but I, I it <laughs> should be coming soon. It's in the works. Awesome. That also has a paper, uh, an open access paper that was published in LSHS in 2020, Spencer and Peterson. Um, and the, the title is Narrative Intervention Principles to Practice. Principles mm. to Practice. Yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> it's an open access article. So uh, you can go there, preview it, and then huh. and do the CEU course when it comes out. Um, I think those are the major things. You can also check us out on YouTube and Vimeo. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Vimeo. Vimeo. We have lots of videos. You will, I mean, you could just, this sounds really embarrassing, but like you can just like <laughs> Google Trina Spencer or yeah. you, in YouTube search yeah. story champs or my name, you'll get so many videos of me. And then you'll watch like all of the haircuts I've had. Over the last <laughs> oh, this was this look she was doing. I, I have a picture from my CFY or my first year as a speech therapist and I have like blonde highlights and I've been showing that in all my talks, you know, cause you got to liven it up a bit. So I you know I like that. So that's yeah. amazing. Well, thank yeah. you so much for coming on today. This was such great information and it was so fun to connect. Good. Well, I'm glad it was useful for you and I hope it wasn't too much information. No, it was great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.